There you are. And here's my Bible. You know, guys, uh, as, uh, as a method, we don't have a very good one. That is, um, we're going to resume in, in Romans chapter 6 tonight. And um, it has been um, almost a month, um, over a month, over a month since we uh, were in Romans before. Which means that I don't see how it's possible for you to remember uh, what we were discussing a month ago. It's hard for you to fit uh, everything into a nice, a seamless uh, message from the Apostle Paul when we're, you know, even when we're separated by a week, it's very difficult to remember the context in which we're, uh, uh, in which we find ourselves, which make it you know, it's so difficult. For instance, really what we're going to study tonight, verses 20 and 21, uh, are a development of the argument of verse 19. So it's so difficult for you to follow the argument when uh, we last discussed the argument of 19 over a month ago. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to change it. Uh, we certainly can't meet um, every night from now until we finish the book of Romans. But uh, I just want you to know I understand a difficulty when you, when you just get these chunks and they seem to be completely um, disjointed and unrelated. So what I'm going to try to do is, is make up for a little bit of that tonight. By um, What I want to do is I've got kind of a closing statement which is a closing statement as to how to understand these two verses. I'm going to give it to you first. And then we're going to work our way towards it. And then at the end, I'm going to give it to you again in hopes that you can see some um, uh, sense of continuity in, in what the Apostle Paul is doing. Let me show you first. Let me read you first the verses 20 and 21, which will be... Uh, on, I'll tell you what, we're going to read 20 through 23 um, because they're all doing the same thing. Um, is that me ringing? Or I mean, I can take this off if I need to, and I'm sure no one would complain about not being able to hear me. <laughs> I've never had that complaint before. Um, <clears throat> verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now guys, <clears throat> that paragraph is really something that is related to the closing portion or the closing exhortation of verse 19. What the Apostle Paul is doing in uh, verses 20 through 23 is having given us that exhortation at the close of verse 19, he now is supporting or giving us reasons um, to obey or to heed that exhortation of verse 19. So, from verses 20 to 23, he supplies us with arguments or reasons as to why this admonition should be heeded. 
Um, now, and those, those reasons can really be divided into three main parts. In, uh, first, he has given us some um, negative reasons in verses 20 and 21 as to why verse 19 should be heeded. And then in verse 22, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, he gives us some positive reasons. And then finally in verse 23, he puts this whole truth before us both positively and negatively. Now, uh, that's kind of dividing up the paragraph, but let me show you or take a look with me at the last few words of verse 19. Because here's the exhortation. The exhortation is, so, now... Present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's the exhortation. He is exhorting us to present our members for righteousness under holiness. And then he's going to give us some reasons to do that. Look at verse 20. And now, um, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. All right? Um, I don't know that this is going to make any sense right now, but this is where we're headed. And, and I hope it'll make sense before we get and when we finally get there at the end. He's in essence saying, when you served sin in your past, when you used to serve sin, you were free from righteousness. Now, when you serve righteousness, you ought to be free from sin. <laughs> That's kind of the summary. Let's see if we can work towards that, and we'll conclude with it uh, when we get there. Uh, in about 20 minutes. Okay. Um, guys, in, uh, the exhortation is, present your members to righteousness. Now, let me tell you why, says the Apostle Paul. Because when you were a non-Christian, you used to be slaves of sin, and you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, there are two things that are said in that text, in that verse. Number one. Uh, in uh, our non-Christian states, we were slaves to sin. He doesn't realize it, which is one of the greatest tragedies of sin, I think. But uh, then he says, in that slavery to sin, you had no bondage to righteousness. That is, you were free from righteousness. That's in verse 20. Which simply means um, that... We were a slave to sin. We weren't a slave to righteousness because we, in that state of sin, were governed, directed, and controlled, and dominated by sin. Now, guys, I would draw your attention to a couple of things. First of all, this is something that he has already said and that we looked at several weeks ago, that the idea is there's a choice of two slaveries. You are either a slave to sin... Or you are a slave to righteousness. Uh, one or the other. Whose slave are you? Because prior to having come to Christ, you were a slave to sin. But now you're supposed to be a slave to righteousness. Gang, the non-Christian has no relationship at all to righteousness. Now, I didn't say that he doesn't have a relationship to morality. That is, he is not characterized in any way by righteousness, but he may indeed be characterized as moral. There's a lot of good people that see absolutely no need for Christ 
and for his atonement. And um, that's the man that I'm convinced is the most dangerous of all to Christianity. That they are good men, that they are moral people, but have not yet in any way seen a need for what Christ offers at, at Calvary. They are good, moral folks. They have no relationship to righteousness, but they are. that's not to say that they are not in some ways good. I remember years ago, I read an article in the, in the Commercial Appeal about a man, I hope this won't offend many, um, didn't say it wouldn't offend some, but just not many. Um, he was a Unitarian pastor, and he was handing out condoms to his congregation in an effort to um, allow them to avoid AIDS. And that was being applauded by the community. Now, the article that I was reading was somewhat, uh, that event was somewhat in the past. And um, the article goes on to say that his congregation had later found out that this same man had a very lengthy police record. <laughs> now, but here is a man who is doing what he, what the community applauds as a very kind and wonderful thing. I am not saying, ladies and gentlemen, that non-Christians have no relationship to morality, if you call that morality. I'm saying that they are free from righteousness. Righteousness is the, the, the need that we recognize that we have for Jesus Christ and what He accomplished at Calvary. What a fine man, the world may say. God calls it. God calls morality nothing more than a wad of filthy rags. Guys, I remember those days. I remember having a, a fair degree of reputation for being... I, I remember um, <laughs> when I played baseball, uh, I played baseball on a, on a team that traveled all over the South, and the man... Uh, who sponsored this team, I, I think the company's out of business now, it's called Polarcraft. And Polarcraft um, made boats, fishing boats and a little bit larger boats. And so uh, he had a son that was quite a pitcher and was drafted by the Yankees out of high school. Uh, was a left-handed pitcher, went on Mississippi State and played. And, and we played against each other and I played at Tennessee. And, and um, But he was really the, 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 the star of the show. He really was. And I certainly wasn't, although I wanted to be. Um, but he was really the star. But he would, his father had put together this team uh, known as Polarcraft, and we would travel all over East Arkansas, North Mississippi, anybody that would play us. What we would do is that we, we would, um, he would make an offer to the community, I'm going to give away a Polarcraft boat in the seventh inning, you put together your all-star team, your best players in the entire city will come down and play you and um, see what happens. Uh, this is really, I shouldn't, I mean, I, I've got one small little point that's about 15 minutes away in this story. But, um, but, but anyway, I, we would go to, and it was really a, an opportunity to showcase his son, and really, he was quite good. He was a left-handed pitcher, and he, he, was, he was good. And nobody ever beat us. And we would travel all over North Mississippi, and we'd play in little Delta towns, and we'd play in bigger towns, and we'd play in Arkansas, we'd play doubleheaders, and, you know, we would just beat anybody, all comers we would beat, and then he'd give away a boat, and everybody was happy. But as we traveled, as that team traveled, 
one of the things that I did, I don't know why I did it, uh, I don't know what in my childhood prompted me to do it, but I would always come to my mother before we would head out to whatever we was, we, it was we were doing, and I would kiss my mother and tell my mother that I loved her. And I would kiss her on the mouth as a young, strapping teenager. Will every... That's the point, <laughs> by the way. It has nothing to do with the baseball game. But the point is, everybody would just... Isn't he just the nicest guy? He kisses his mother on the mouth and tells her he loves her. That was a big deal to somebody, and they would all applaud all of my marvelous morality. When in fact, you and I both know the truth, don't we? Now, by the way, I wasn't trying to hoodwink anybody. I wasn't trying to mislead anybody. It was just something that the youngs did, you know. We kissed on my mother on the mouth. But the, 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 the crowd concluded, Oh, what a fine young man that young boy is. And that wasn't the truth. That's what the world does, ladies and gentlemen. The world looks at all this morality and they... That is marvelous. That is so good. And God says, it's a stack of filthy rags. Men, these, these people in a non-Christian state have no relationship to righteousness. Um, he knows nothing about God's righteousness. And I'll tell you this. The moment we find out anything about that righteousness, our initial reaction is, Morality, we know and love. Righteousness scares the dickens out of us. There was a woman who I heard about who is a, a, an English teacher at a, at a um, southern college that you would all recognize. And she decided that all of her students had, um, had heard of, and, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so she assigned them, but they never read it. And so she assigned them to read the Sermon on the Mount and turn in a report about their reactions to the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? And the students read the Sermon on the Mount, wrote their little papers, and some of the papers they wrote were things like, I don't like that at all. Not only does... I mean, it's silly. Um, not only does it ask uh, us to... Um, uh, not commit adultery. It says that you're not even supposed to think bad thoughts. It's out of touch with reality. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the reaction of the moral man to righteousness. Because anytime we finally, the Holy Spirit allows us to grasp righteousness in its beauty, through the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, our natural reaction is going to be, for God's sake, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. The, the, the impact of the Sermon on the Mount and righteousness in all of its beauty is to cause us to flee to Christ and to be done with our deadly moralisms. But what that text says, if you look at it, for when you were slaves of sin, 
you were free in regard to righteousness. Indeed we were. And I say to you, gang, there is, there is nothing that is really more appealing to an unconverted man than morality. Morality, and very frankly, very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, morality isn't half as hard as righteousness. Oh, give me morality. You know, there's a sense in which there's something really beautiful about Mormonism. I got those good families and got that great choir. You know, gosh, put me down for one of those. Or better yet, let me be a liberal. Man, it's easy to be a liberal. It's easy. Today I was, um, I'm teaching the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, at a Bible study at the International Paper. And, and um, I, I don't know, actually, take a look at this with me real quick. And I, this is not in my notes. And uh, this just takes time. And, um, but um, here's the passage that we're at. We're, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through, we didn't get through it, but through 20. And uh, let me just summarize it for you quickly. There's two things that Jesus does in that passage, in that paragraph. He says, first of all, everything that I'm about to teach you is in abject harmony with the Old Testament. That's the first principle that grows out of that little paragraph right there in Matthew 5. But then he says, everything I'm teaching is in harmony with the Old Testament, but everything I'm teaching is also in disharmony with what you've heard from the scribes and the Pharisees. I love that about Jesus. I love that. I love it when he says, this I'm in harmony with. That I'm in discord with. That is the truth. This is the error. But ladies and gentlemen, anybody that speaks like that these days is considered intolerant and an absolutist. That's why, let me be a liberal. Golly gee. If you're a liberal, you can say, we're all God's children. The universal brotherhood of man and fatherhood of God. That's the fundamental principle, ladies and gentlemen, of liberalism. The universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. And I want you to know, they're both false. There is no such thing as a universal fatherhood of God. There is a universal creaturehood of God. That is, a creature-ness. I mean, he created everybody. But he is only the father of those who have come to terms with Jesus Christ. That means that I'm not a brother of everybody. I share creatureliness, but gosh, let me be a liberal and stand up and tell people that, you know, everybody come to our church and we'll pack you with condoms. That'll get a crowd at least, wouldn't it? Let me stand in the pulpit and say, everything's just hunky-dory. Let me do that. I'd much rather do that. It's easier. I guarantee it's easier. Easier. But we as the Christian, we are the Christian, we as the people of God are constrained by the truth. I'd love to be a liberal. There's only one problem. It's not the truth. I'd love to be a Mormon. I've got to say that choir. Do my two years and be told I'm on my way to heaven. There's only one problem. It's a lie. And so I come back to this Jesus who says, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, you used to be a slave of sin, and when you were, you had no relationship to righteousness whatsoever. Now, again, what I'm trying to say is, I'm not saying that when you were a non-Christian you weren't moral. 
I'm saying you had no relationship to righteousness. Those are two different things. And then in verse 21, which is a wonderful, we, we really need to spend a long time on verse 21, but we won't. Uh, again, he's trying to tell us, um, or give us a description, an account of um, the type of life that was true when we were not Christians. And he tells us three things. Notice, let me read the text. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed For the end of those things is death. He tells us three things. Number one, remember, remember guys, he's giving us negative reasons to obey the exhortation of verse 19. The exhortation is present your members of slaves, uh, uh, present your members as slaves of righteousness. He's calling upon us to do that. Present your members as slaves of righteousness. By the way, Here's a, here's a reason to do that. You know, when you were a slave of sin, <laughs> you had no relationship with righteousness. And in that life, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Here's two things. Number one, in that life, it was fruitless. Paul is saying, what good was that life? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. You can see the question mark at the end of it. But the answer is, What fruit did you bear? None. It was fruitless. You know, Solomon says, all is of vanity and is... um, How does he say it? All is of vanity. I didn't say there wasn't some pleasure involved in that life. I didn't say that. He's just simply saying, there's no fruit in it there's no fruit in that life and those things that you used to do that were fruitless and pointless are now things of which we are ashamed oh my oh my you still have some of that you ought to we ought to now, I'll say this, there's no, no, there's no sense in us living in shame. But, guys, um, what you find in, in, um, in the non-Christian life is shameful. Some of the things that we did ought to make us blush when we remember them. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting statement in Jeremiah chapter 8. In fact, I remember doing it with the singles years ago. And um, it, it, it goes something like this. Um, and Israel has even forgotten how to blush. My life, those lifestyles are, have become so, so, we become so uh, inoculated and hardened that even our, Shameful living doesn't produce a blush. It's a life that is fruitless. It's a life... You know, when I, when I think of the fruitless... I, well, here's what I think of, and of course this is certainly no way to prove anything. I'm not trying... It doesn't prove anything, but I keep... I, I, of course, I'm a child of the 60s, you know, Kent State, uh, Beatles. Uh, but... 
one of these songs back in those days was a Rolling Stones song by Mick Jagger. That nincompoop is still out there making a fortune at age 65. You know, uh, he, he's forgotten how to blush. I'm afraid, but, but you remember the song, I Can't Get No. That's it. Can't get no satisfaction. And more I, the more, and, and you know what, ladies and gentlemen, the awareness of no satisfaction, I think, becomes, it comes to us quicker and sooner and, and more painfully the more successful we are. Because we keep thinking that maybe that will do it. And we discover, mm, that didn't do it. Well, let me go on to this next uh, short-term uh, goal. Let me see if that'll give me it. Well, mm, that didn't do it either. We'll build a house. Mm, we'll put it in a pool. And we'll take a vacation to Europe. Mm, that didn't, none of that did it. You know, uh, okay, now we'll uh, change houses and uh, maybe change wives and, uh, and maybe, uh, you know, change uh, hairdos and, you know, on and on. And uh, the, the, the more success we have, the quicker, I think, we come to the realization. Can't get no. Because it's fruitless. And it's things that we look back on now as the people of God and are ashamed that we ever did. And then finally he says, those things lead to death. For the end of those things is death. Gang, he is giving us reasons to present our members to righteousness. Here's a reason. To do otherwise <laughs> is to put ourselves on a path that leads to death. When we were presenting our members to uncleanness, we were on a path of death. You know, um, I remember coming to the realization early on as a Christian, that what I had gotten into was really radical. You know, that stuff in the Sermon on the Mount about if he asks you to go one mile, go two miles. I've never done that in my life. He asks for your coat, give him your long johns too or whatever. You know, I've never done that in a day. I've never done it once. I can only say the only impact of that text that has had on me is the realization that you and I are into something very radical. The demands of righteousness are extraordinarily radical. And one of the quotes that comes to mind is a C.S. Lewis quote. Of course, I quote him a lot. Uh, by the way, can I just, just for 90 seconds, do you know that our junior high ministry is studying a C.S. Lewis work? Do you appreciate that? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Do you know any place where the junior high ministry is being exposed to C.S. Lewis? I, I'm just... I, was, I found that out at the staff meeting yesterday, and I'm just... No kidding. I don't, I'm not sure they'll get anything from it. Uh, but they'll, they'll learn the name C.S. Lewis. But anyway, one of the quotes that I love from C.S. Lewis is, One way we know Christianity is true is because nobody would dream this thing up. <laughs> you know, have you ever noticed... There are some things in the New Testament that are absolutely... I mean, first of all, do you know that your Messiah was born illegitimately? At least that's what the people thought. I mean, what kind of religion has a Messiah that on the night that he's supposed to wrap things up, prays that he can get out from underneath it? You know, God, if you can find another way, I really like it. 
there is an interesting thing in the in the twenty first. I want you to see this, and with this, we'll, I'll shut up. Toda, uh, if you can find John twenty one, real quick. This is after the resurrection, and um, you know this is this great catch of fish that they have. This is really kind of comical. I don't think it's intended to be comical, but it's kind of comical. Look. Um, where is it? They catch the fish. Uh, it's me, Lord. Oh, here it is. It is. Um, that's verse 7. Therefore, that disciple in Jesus loves to be. It is the Lord. Now Simon plunged in the water and all that business. Look at verse 11. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of fish, 153. <laughs> Why? Why does somebody tell you that there were 153 fish in the net? What does it add to the narrative? Do you need to know that? What purpose is there in it? How do you explain it? I'll tell you how you explain it. Because somebody counted those fish that night and this guy was impressed that there were 153 of them. My, what I'm saying is that, that little number right there in verse 11 is a proof of the veracity and reliability of this book. Because it wouldn't have been included any other way. When you're writing about legends, ladies and gentlemen, you don't say, oh, there's a, you say there's a big draft of fish, a big catch of fish. You don't say, and by the way, there's 153 of them. Somebody counted them. The only way you can explain that little notation is because, the only way, because it actually happened. My point is to simply serve the C.S. Lewis quote. One way we know that Christianity is true is because nobody would dream this thing up. Nobody would dream up, hey, stick in there, you know, 153 fish in there. No, nobody would dream this up. Let me, let me close where I told you I was going to close, where I warned you I was going to close. Um... What Paul is doing is trying to give you reasons to heed the admonition of verse 19. That admonition is that you would present your members as slaves of, an, uh, as slaves of righteousness. He exhorts you to do that. And then he says, let me give you a couple of negative reasons why that would serve to prompt you to do that. That is, as when you were serving sin, you had no relationship to righteousness. Now, when you're serving righteousness, have no relationship to sin. That's what these verses are about. All of that serving under the grand heading of His argument that was presented in verse 1 which was back in September I'm sure you remember he's just developing again more reasons for us to reject the notion that if we have tasted of the rich and pure quality of grace the very idea of sin ought to be utterly repugnant the opposite, present your members as slaves of righteousness. Hope that ties it together for you a little bit. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will use the handling of your word to 
to entice your people, to encourage your people, to stimulate your people, to head towards a path where we find ourselves enjoying the glorious liberty of slavery to righteousness. Father, that only doesn't make sense to somebody who has never met the one whose dutiful obedience to his father means that a bunch of slaves could be set free to obey the God who made us. Father, give us a great enjoyment and refreshment by sitting beneath your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night. Hope to see you next week.